This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you and welcome to Reimagining Food Waste. This is the third uh, panel from my foundation, the Very Good Food Foundation, part of our Future Thought Leaders uh, panel series. Uh, and before I introduce this amazing panel of speakers, I do want to, to, to make some appropriate thanks. Uh, first, I do want to thank, and thank you, Chuck, wherever you just went, Kitchen for Good for the venue. Um, I want to thank the farms, the restaurants, and the retailers that you see on the slide above me for providing all of the otherwise wasted ingredients. Um, I really also want to thank the chefs, the volunteer chefs who came in and taught the culinary students here at Kitchens for Good in the process of making the food for tonight. That's Isabel Cruz, David Waite, Vincent Huerta, and Joanne Sharif. And thank you. Solar Rain, who's providing the desalinated ocean water, drinking water that we're drinking today, powwow. And I really need to give a shout out to, where's Hammer Jones and the Kitchens for Good culinary team. You guys were amazing. Thank you. You see what they made tonight with what would otherwise be wasted ingredients? You should follow Chuck's lead and absolutely hire them for your next event. So now let's introduce my panel. On my far right is Ilva Mwindi, who's the education program manager from One to One Movement. Uh, She'll be talking about her away and stacked mobile class teaching programs. She's an educator, puppeteer, and bird watcher. I like that. You have to tell us more about that, Ilva. Maria Hesse, Hesse, I should know that. That's the uh, county in Germany. Okay. She's a chef, designer, writer, food waste activist, and author of The Intentionalist Cooks. All right. Let's hold our applause till the end, Carolyn. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, next we have Heather Dane, who is the co-author with Louise Hay of The Bone Broth Secret and radio show host at Hay House Radio and health coach and 21st century medicine woman. I like that. On my right is Anita Raj, uh, Dr. Raj, thank you, who just traveled around the world to be here with us today. So thank you, thank you for joining us. Professor of Medicine and Global Public Health at UC San Diego, founding director of the Center of Gender Equity and Health at UCSD, and she is a well-published, uh, peer-reviewed author, as you can see. On my immediate left is Jennifer Gilmore, who's the executive director here at Kitchens for Good, former executive director of Feeding America. Uh, she has been a leader and a pioneer in addressing hunger in our community. Uh, to her left is Ali Tarantino, the creator of the Waste Not San Diego program at Specialty Produce, and she'll be talking about that tonight. Uh, she's also a pastry chef and former, formerly worked for a production crew. Next, we have Sarah Boltwala Messina. She's the founder and executive director of Inika Small Earth. Uh, she'll be telling us about her program that delivers food from restaurants to community gardens and some of her other work. Then we have Chris Young. He's the founder of Closing the Loop and the owner of Recon Recycling, which is an integrated zero-waste recycling program, and he'll tell you about all of the interesting programs that he has going on in our community. Next, my good friend Noel Staley, co-owner of Staley Farms Organics, Staley Farms Market, and Staley Ranch, third-generation farmer in California, second-generation San Diegan. 
And finally, we have Kevin Davis, who is from the business side of things. He's a principal at GreenCore Capital, clean tech investor and pioneer, and he's going to tell us about some of the projects that he is working on. So let's get into it. And this is an open conversation. We'll be taking questions via Twitter. You can tweet in your questions. We'll be watching them up here on stage to BGFF Food Waste. There we go. I have to pull it close to read it. So first we want to talk about why are we here talking about food waste and waste in general? Like how big of an issue is this? Food waste represents squandered resources, right? Water, land, energy, labor, capital, and not to mention the greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from this food waste. So the first thing we really need to talk about is what do we do about it? How can we eliminate waste? How can we reduce waste? Because our first goal is to eliminate it. Just to give you an idea of how bad the situation is, if we reduced our food waste by just one quarter globally, we would have enough food to feed all of the world's hungry. Right? So clearly, if we can each just take a few steps in our own lives, in our businesses, in our communities, and maybe even reach for greater change, we can change the world. Right? So let's start talking with Ilva. We're going to open it up first, who's focused on waste generally and also food waste. So tell us, Ilva, about the programs that you have at One to One and how they relate to the issue of waste. Yes, yeah, so we are a San Diego-based local environmental nonprofit, and we do the AWAY project, which is achieving waste awareness with youth throughout schools in the county of San Diego. Now, the reason why we do this waste reduction program with students in San Diego is because even though we recycle twice what the average American recycles here in San Diego County, we also throw away a lot more waste into our landfills. This is a serious problem in San Diego, and we think that educating youth is a really important component of battling this problem. So what we do is we go into schools and we explain to students why waste is a problem. We teach them about what happens when waste ends up in a landfill. So they learn about how compostables, like our organic food waste, when it goes into a landfill, it starts to create methane gas, which is a cause for climate change. And they also learn about how our trash is causing environmental degradation. So we talk about the why this is a problem. And then we have the students collect their trash for a week. So they have to figure out exactly how much trash they're making, and they usually make a lot more trash than they think they do. I think that's probably true for all of us. This might be an experiment that everyone in this audience and everybody watching should try at home. Imagine, you know, I'd like to think it would be a small paper sack, but my guess is it would probably be a lot more than that. And what do you find in there? What's revealing about the students' practices? Yeah, so um, on Friday we come back, they have to sort out their trash. And what they find is they have a lot of food packaging. They have a lot of Cheetos, Doritos, Oreos, right? All of these snacks that they picked up during the week. And they're left with all of this plastic packaging that can't be recycled and will end up in a landfill. And a big reason why they have that plastic packaging is because they don't want to eat the school lunch that's provided, right? So in the same day that they throw away an entire orange, they go and they buy a bag of Doritos. And so they've created twice the waste. If they've eaten the the orange, there might be some peel, uh, but instead they've passed on the orange and eaten something that might be food in its place in a plastic wrapper. That's a a problem, right? Yeah. So then they have to brainstorm ways that they can reduce. And so it brings youth in on how we're going to affect positive change. Because we currently live in a society that makes food waste very 
very easy. And students don't really think about the food that they're wasting. Young people really don't think about it because they're not being asked to think about it very often. Well, I wouldn't single out young people. I'd say as a society, we don't pay very much. Look, here's another interesting statistic. Today versus 1970, we in the United States throw away 50% more food than we did. So, you know, we have clearly gotten worse and not better. So it's not just young people, but probably young people are the answer. They're the future, so they are the right ones to teach. So Yeah, it is their planet, right? It is their planet. It's their planet. So they come up with ways that they can reduce their environmental impact, ways that they can reduce how much trash they're making. And it often means that they come up with the brilliant idea of eating the orange instead of going and getting the Cheetos later on during the day. But well, they like come to that conclusion. <laughs> they're not told that that's the way to do it. Yeah, great. That's, in, that's incredible. Uh, and is there any, has there been any sort of revelation through that process, something that surprised you that came out of it? Has a, what has a student done in response to it? Anything that sort of stands out from your experience? You know, when you work with really young students, they get really inspired and they also get really angry. When they find out how big the problem is and they find out what it is they're going to inherit someday, they get really angry and they get really upset. And I don't always have an answer for them about why we have so much trash in the ocean and why we have so many greenhouse gas emissions. And that anger is what surprises me. The fact that they're only 12, 13, and they can already feel the injustice of it. And they come up with really, really good ideas about changes they can make in their lifestyle, but they also come up with really good ideas about what we can be doing as a society to make it better. And we often don't listen to young people and the ideas that they have, but I think that if we did and actually made some of those ideas come true, we could make a real impact. I want to give a little bit more information about some of the squandered resources. You mentioned it. So 25% of U.S. water use uh, is, is utilized to grow food that's tossed out. Uh, if we aggregated all of the land worldwide that is used to grow food that is tossed out or uneaten, it would equal the size of the country of Mexico. 10% of the U.S. energy budget goes to bringing food to our table. And the uh, $1,600 is what the average uh, family in the United States spends on food that isn't eaten and 1,400 are the number of calories that the average American throws away in food every day. So we, we clearly, there's a lot of room for improvement, that's good, and I think it's great to hear you talk about kids, and I was thinking about when recycling was the issue that was new, and it really, I watched for a while as, you know, older people, you know, were less responsive to, the, to make change in their life, and I would see their kids saying, no, mom, you need to put that in that bin, right? So hopefully with the work that you're doing, we'll inspire the kids to force the rest of us to be a little bit less wasteful. Uh, and, and so first thing is, is waste, waste not. So, and then let's see, how do we deal with the waste that we do have? Well, the worst thing we can do is, is put it into the landfill, which is currently what happens. Uh, if uh, food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world after China and the United States. So it's a big, big problem. And so we're going to start by going down. There's, look, there's a hierarchy. There's a way to talk about. First is don't waste. And then after that, what do we do with that waste? Well, the first thing is we feed people. So at home, as we're talking about reducing your waste, we have two people here who can talk a little bit about what you as a consumer in your own home can do to try to reduce your waste. So Maria, you want to give us some tips on what people can do in their home in terms of yeah. you know, reducing their waste, <laughs> using foods they're not used to using, the tops of the carrots, all the stuff that's on the menu today? 
what I've witnessed, a lot of times people have the intention of cooking something that's really healthy, so they go and they get the big bushel of chard, and they get the big thing of kale, and they get the big cabbage, and then I come in to do my weekly meal prep as their personal chef, and they're like, oh, you know, I didn't know what to do with this cabbage. And so it's about, you know, as a family, I think making, a, or a household, I should say, because there's so many different dynamics now, but as a household, making a real effort to be conscientious food consumers so that you're meal planning together, you're looking for, you know, ingredients that you want to try something new with and um, eat your leftovers. That's probably <laughs> my, my first tip because so much of that automatically goes into the garbage. Um, but, you know, put an effort into it. it. It takes a few hours a week and budget yourself. Build a pantry. Like, make it a business, basically, to, to feed yourself. You need to put that kind of uh, responsibility into the care of your life and, and the food that you're consuming. Because it, it does, you know, affect the environment and it affects your health. And they, they go together one and one. And what about sort of the other parts of vegetables, you know, uh, the greens on the top of the carrots? Or we have a basket here of what would otherwise be ugly produce, you know, carrots with an extra leg, the carrot tops, uh, greens. Uh, some of this is from my garden and other gardens, the farms that were indicated. You know, they might have a little hole because somebody ate some, which is actually a good sign because <laughs> if a bug wants to eat it, it probably won't kill you, right? Right. And uh, so what do you do about that? How do you, you serve? Can you serve that it. lettuce? You cut around it. And I've, I've seen articles, too, that talk about... because. I kind of like my fruit to be almost over-ripened. So if you have strawberries, you let them get to the point where they're like just about ready to go. And then you, you know, cut out any bad spots. And if you macerate them or you're going to prepare a dessert with them, they tend to be just so much more sweeter and uh, present with that strawberry essence that you really want. So don't, don't be afraid to cut around a bug. Like it, it, the, the whole fruit isn't bad just because there's one little spot. Um, a lot of the, the scraps like carrot tops or, or the, the white parts of green onions, which is probably one thing that I see offensively wasted quite frequently, can be used in something else. They can be used in a stock or in a dressing. Um, food processors are amazing for breaking down those things in really easy applications. And, and um, you know, they, they just add nutritious value to your food. They make them more beautiful, more colorful. I think you had mentioned a, a carrot peeling um, the, the skins. You had made a salad off of it. And you could make a dressing off of the carrot tops, and it would be like this totally repurposed waste salad. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. In the United States, again, so six billion pounds of fruit and vegetables in this country uh, go, are unharvested or unsold because basically because of the way they look. And there's an interesting dynamic at play here. So in developing countries, 40% of food loss occurs at the post-harvest or processing phase. Um, whereas in industrialized countries like, um, like the United States, 40% is at the retailer consumer level. Why? Because we don't want to choose the produce that has, you know, two-legged carrot or has a stain or a spot. And so what happens, you know, well, it, it, it doesn't go from the farm to the retail because the retail knows that the consumer won't buy it. I mean, our choices really can have an impact in how much food waste and the idea that we're rejecting food, you know, really good food based on looks alone is, is really a travesty. And we have to get our minds around it and really start to embrace the ugly ugly produce. I, I don't like using that term because I don't find it ugly at all, but uh, I think that's a really important part. So, Heather, what would you add to the conversation? Well, as I was thinking about important messages when it comes to food waste, I take myself back to about 11 years ago when I was in my corporate job, 
And at that time, I was working 12 hours a day. And I'm sitting here thinking, how do we think about waste when we have very little time in our lives? And back then, when I was, I actually approached changing my habits because my health was declining. And through that process, what I realized was that the food system was actually set up for someone like me, who had no time for myself, no time for the people in my life, and was working all the time. The food system is set up so that there are piles of food wherever we go so that it appears as if there's plenty. We don't realize when we walk into a store that there is a food problem. And there's a reason behind that, and that's because psychologically we won't pick the one peach that's sitting there. We want a pile. Otherwise, we don't think that that peach is okay. If there's one little spot and there's only a small amount, we move on to the next thing oftentimes. And so I realized that my whole basis of nutrition and of food was based off of food marketing. So I went back to my ancestry, and I'm a Haudenosaunee, which is, you may know is Iroquois Indian. And I went back to my relatives in upstate New York and Oneida, and I looked at what they were doing. Now, because their land had been ripped from them, they were also in the realm of food marketing, but they had woken up because their health had declined as well. We don't live well in a world that has a food system in the way that we're going right now. We live well in a world where we learn how to take our food back. And so I started to learn the principles, which one was sustainability. They always taught you take only what you need and you leave the rest for the next seven generations of people and the next seven generations of the species. They also taught you use every single part of every single plant and every single animal. That is the first way that we can show honor to Mother Earth. And if we're doing those things in our own homes, we can save not only 25% of waste that's happening in our food system, but we can also start to nourish ourselves better. And when you start to do that, oftentimes you start to realize that it's okay to take the time to take care of yourself. It's okay to take the time to take care of your family. It's okay to gather with friends and figure out how we're going to use these pieces and parts of food. The way I like to do it is to invite friends over and have a broth party. You know, you take a slow cooker or a stock pot, you throw in all your scraps. So all while I'm, while I'm cutting things up in the kitchen, I'll take all the little odds and ends of everything, the, the peels, the scraps, the, the greens on top, and I'm busy still. I'm better than I was. But I throw them in the freezer in a bag, and I let them collect until the bag is full. And when it's full, we can call our friends, our family together. We can gather in the kitchen and bond. And we can then take the vegetables or the bones or carcasses of everything we've been eating. We can cover it with water. And with vegetables, it only takes 40 minutes to extract all those nutrients. With bones, you can do it anywhere from one and a half hours to 48 hours. But the magic of this is if we take the time to do this, it actually heals our body. So we're healing the earth and we're healing our body at the same time. We're delivering easily digested nutrients. We're delivering collagen, important vitamins and minerals. And so when I got to the level of saying, if I could change the way I approach my life and make it more sustainable, to approach everything I do in a way that feels sustainable, I could actually have more time in my life to do things that are sustainable for the earth. And so if there's one message I'd like to leave is to think that 
if you're going to do this, if you want to prioritize taking time in the kitchen, when you hold that food, you're connecting to the earth. If you live in the city, this is a beautiful way to have an indoor garden. You don't have to have the dirt. You can have the whole food. And if you keep your odds and ends in the freezer, it gives you a perfect place to use it later on, whether you're going to turn it into purees or you're going to use peels of lemons and dehydrate them in the oven and make them into a vitamin C supplement or something like that. You're giving yourself the time to reconnect to something that is not just important for the earth, but that's important for your health as well. You've all raised issues really relating to sort of foods, fruits and vegetables. In Ilva's case, uh, fruits and vegetables that kids aren't eating. Um, Both of you sort of like the way the produce looks. And in your instance, you're talking about bones, which, by the way, is something you can probably get for free at the grocer because, you know, it's a waste product. Um, But I wanted to ask Noel for a second. Uh, This question came from the audience. But, you know, why is it, from a farmer's perspective, how come you can't get, you know, your missized orange or uh, the tattered lettuce? Why can't it go to the next phase? What about, tell us about standard pack laws. How does that affect this? Well, in standard pack laws, you, you have categories. Let's say, take citrus, for example. You have fancy, choice, and juice. Um, and then you have trash. So fancy is what you see in most supermarkets. Uh, choice is going to go uh, at, a, at a lesser uh, cost to um, food service. Um, some supermarkets will take it. You know, the People's Co-op, our, our stores... Um, things like that, they'll, they'll look beyond the blemish. And then you have your juice grade, and that'll go off to juice facilities, or nowadays and we have so many juice plants or uh, juice uh, bars around, it sells direct. Um, we've become a, a society of if it looks good, it tastes good. And uh, I hate to tell you, but that's absolutely wrong when it comes to everything I grow. Uh, so... It's so true. <laughs> it, you know, I, I used to, uh, when I started doing straight to the customer, it was through farmer's markets, and uh, I had employees. I, would, I was an employee of my dad, and then when I got out of school, I was the boss. And uh, I'd, I'd go to work with these farmer's markets with, with, with other employees who worked them every week. I was only there every so often. And I'd say, if you find a better orange in the market, it may look better, but if you find one that tastes better, I'll buy it for you. I'll buy the whole bag. And my workers would get so mad. No, our cash boxes are going to be off because they're going to come back next week and you're not going to be here and the cash box is going to be off and you're going to come back on us. And I said, no, you just tell me that you make sure they bring you that bag and show you how good that orange was, that it was better because it doesn't have to look good. We left things on the tree until they tasted good. It has to taste good. And um, in the 70s, we became a very integrated um, Pacific region and a lot of in the I'm just talking citrus, avocados, and vegetables go along along. But in citrus is a really good example. We started selling a lot to an economy that was booming in the late '70s and early '80s. Japan. Japan didn't want anything that was ugly. And as a citrus industry, if it was ugly, it was kicked out. We'd send a a, bin, a truckload of of citrus, which is 51,000 pound bins. So 50,000 pounds would go into a into a plant. And they'd pack 60, 80, 40-pound cartons sometimes and send you a bill for, for the rest of the packing because all of the rest of it went to a juice plant that 
in that, back in those days, there was no market really for juice as there is today because Florida made all the juice. And that was driven by this economy in Japan where one grapefruit would cost them anywhere from, in the 80s, $10 to $100 if it was a pomelo and it was big and beautiful. And that ran California. I'm talking California because that's what I know. But that ran the citrus industry for a long time in California. And we became this, this industry that sprayed and pesticide and sprayed weeds. And there wasn't a pest. And our fruit was perfect. And it tasted like crap. <laughs> and uh, we picked it. And we held our fingers and crossed our fingers that it got an export price, you know. Nowadays, that's coming full circle. So, you know, the, the market drives a lot of things that we do. And in that case, that's kind of where that, that's kind of how we got down that road. If you look at your statistic, that in the 70s, we wasted a lot less. Well, look what happened in the economy and in farming and all that. We went from, from farms that grew very, all kinds of things to mono farms. You know, we were almost a mono farm with citrus and we had two things. We had citrus and avocados. You know, now we have everything under the sun. But, you know, um, so we're coming back around, but there's still a lot of education to, to go. So Refed estimates that if we simply address this unwillingness uh, on our part to eat, quote-unquote, ugly fruit and vegetable, that 266 tons of produce would be diverted from landfills. There'd be a saving, a, a greenhouse gas reduction of 422 tons and 39 billion gallons of water would be saved. So there are a lot of reasons to really try to refocus ourselves away from that. And I think quite frankly, you sort of touched on it. I think tomato is a classic example. We all are very much aware that the perfectly round, shiny red tomato in the grocery store is not the one that tastes good. The one that tastes good is the one that looks like this guy, you know, who would have a tough time selling in most grocery stores. So really, we, we have to change our mindset because the waste that we're creating, particularly in this country, is inexcusable. So now we're going to talk about what the effect of that kind of food waste is. So uh, on my right is Anita, and Anita is an expert in global health as you know, and I just wanted you to talk for a minute about, you know, sort of some of the effects globally um, from malnutrition, um, hunger. Just tell us a little bit about your work and, and how it relates to this issue. Um, so I, I have an opportunity to work a lot in maternal and child health in various countries across the world, and uh, in particular, India. And I just came back from a uh, trip that was through four countries, um, and I cannot... 48 hours ago, right? <laughs> 48 hours ago, yeah. Um, and so I got the invitation from Michelle while I, was, while I was traveling, so I really worked to make sort of an effort to sort of talk to people in the countries that I was in. And um, I think at the point I called you, it, was, it included at that point India, uh, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And um, these are all countries in which we work, and we kind of work to understand the issues of gender inequities and maternal and child health. And so if I can give a, a few statistics about um, child malnutrition. So about one in 13 children is wasting. And what we mean by wasting is that there is such acute uh, nutritional deprivation that the child is 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 starving. It's this very very thin children that you I think used to see in commercials when I was younger. Now they tend to show the very healthy children on those commercials. Um, and about one in four is um, is stunted. 
And what that means is that there's chronic malnutrition. That means that through the course of their life, there have been inadequate nutrients to allow them to develop in height and weight where they should be. So that one in four is about 160 million children around the world, just children under five. Uh, the good news about that is that that's, a, um, that's a, a down from what we saw about 10 years ago, where it was 250 million children under five that were, um, that were specifically uh, undernourished in the point of stunting. Um, so that's good news, and then it's also a little bit disconcerting news, because those children are now adolescents. Those adolescents, and this is some of the work we do, are the mothers to be, and the malnourished adolescent. Now, it's not uncommon to have in some of these settings issues such as early marriage of girls and, and very young childbearing. You're having this deprivation of, of nutritional resources now that she still needs every ounce of nutrition she can have. She's trying to grow the fetus, and there's a com there's, it's compromised, right? Because you've got a growing body girl, and you have a growing fetus, and it's a nutritionally compromised circumstance. So what we're having now is this factor of, of it, it, we've had it for some time, but I think there's a greater awareness of intergenerational malnutrition through this process of, of having the undernourished children, um, or adolescents and, and young adults. Also, what is going on when you look at some of the gender issues is that in food insecure situations, you are going to have, and this is more likely in, in rural areas, and it's not, the food's not even getting there. Okay, so you've got a distribution system, and these, these individuals are not attached to the distribution system. So there are nutrient-based programs in a lot of these countries, and India is a good example of that, and they can get a certain level of nutrient, but it's typically something that would be like um, a grain-based nutrient that's been fortified. It is not a diverse diet. It is enough to survive. It is enough to sustain you. It can impede the likelihood of stunting, but it, not necessarily. And then you take that environment and you have a situation where there's preference for boys relative to girls. And I'm sure you've heard about this, whether it be about education, et cetera. But it is also about food. And so I, uh, there was a presentation in Ethiopia from a, a colleague um, from Brown. And, and one of the things they were describing was that in the food insecure households, what they find is that the girls are less likely to get what nourishment is available. And we've known for a long time between husbands and wives, the husbands are more likely to get the nourishment and the justification is, okay, but they're gonna go out. But this is also a labor-intensive household for domestic labor and for a lot of these women. And these are also women who are childbearing. And so what is lost, that food waste and there is substantial food waste in these countries. I'm in the meetings where we're wasting the food. And then you get to these rural areas, the distribution cutoff there doesn't allow the access, and what food is made available is so inadequate, and then there's social ramifications of who gets the access to that food. And so you have basically just a chronically undernourished population. And people talk about the idea that with poverty, there is increased likelihood of overweight, and that is absolutely true in some urban and, and more developed areas. But in these areas, it is absolutely food deprivation. You know, the, this is an interesting question. When we talk about these kinds of facts and statistics, we tend to think in this country that while we might have malnourished people, they would probably fall into the category that you said. But is that so, Jennifer, from your experience? Do we have hunger as well along the lines of what Anita was talking about? Oh, yeah. I mean, within San Diego County, 
estimated between 400 and 500 people are food insecure. Some people say that's probably a little bit more because it's expensive to live in San Diego. Um, when somebody's hungry, oftentimes it doesn't, they don't look malnourished. They look overfed. And, um, and oftentimes, uh, the people who are struggling with food insecurity are some of the most vulnerable to end up with diabetes or chronic illnesses. And so it makes the type of food we distribute in our hunger relief efforts so much more important to make it healthy. Yeah. So tell us about your work here in San Diego pre previously with Feeding America and now with Kitchens for Good. Yes. In terms of so I was um, started working for food banks and in hunger relief back in 1989 as a as a volunteer and instantly fell in love with feeding hungry people, um, and it made sense to me. Uh, but there came a time when I looked up, and this was after helping distribute 200 million pounds of food, and the lines hadn't gotten shorter, and the families hadn't gotten healthier. And I had this squishy tomato problem. Um, and it was a result of the food system that, or food resources that food banks had access to changing. All, everything that was non-perishable that you could stick on a shelf and leave it for months was being gobbled up by the dollar stores. And we were running out of food. And we had to start looking for another food source. And it ended up being produce, oftentimes like the seconds. And food banks have done actually a really good job diverting food waste. I think 2 billion pounds last year. But when you move to a more perishable food item, wow, it's problematic. You have to have refrigeration. You have to have trucks. You have to have really rapid distribution, and you end up with waste. And I think it was probably somewhere sometimes between 10 and 20% of the produce we would bring in would go to waste. And there was one week we had to dump a bunch of tomatoes. They were squishy. Perfect for sauce, not so good to hand it to a family in need who's been waiting for three hours to get food. And we composted them. And it was probably something like 10 to 20,000 pounds of tomatoes. The next week, I was signing checks, and I had to sign a check for $17,000 to purchase tomato sauce. And I'm like, oh, we can do better. And enter Chuck Samuelson, who said, I'll take your tomatoes, and I'll give you back tomato sauce and soups and stews. And he can do meals. And I said, is this a machine? And Aviva said, no, we're going to train people to become culinary, to work as chefs. And I said, and you're going to and you're going to create meals for hunger. And so you're rescuing food. You're moving people out of food lines. You're feeding the hungry. And 70% of your revenue is going to be earned. Like, sign me up. I'm in. Um, and so it's been a great ride. We've had a lot of fun. <laughs> That's great. Do you, you know, uh, do you still see, say, at the food banks, and I know you're not there now, but... Is there still, you know, produce or other items at the food banks that go uneaten? And, and do you have some ideas about that? Oh, sure, because a lot of the time when we get produce and it comes in, it's in totes. So the top layer, really nice. You start to get down a little lower and you see a few more bruises. By the time you get down, and especially with stone fruit, you've kind of got this, I mean, it's almost jam. It's, 
and so, you know, it was really interesting. We just had stone fruit donated, and it was pretty squishy, but boy, did the students make some of the most beautiful homemade peach roll-ups I'd ever seen. And boy, did those roll-ups make a bunch of kids who are participating in a summer food service program really happy. So there is still a lot of waste. You know, you, um, it happens uh, as you're distributing perishable food. You've got a shortened amount of time. Yeah. Now, there's been some real innovation lately on the business side in ways to use up some of this food. And I think we talked about this earlier today that in Pennsylvania, there's a company that's creating a product called Rescued Relish. And it's sort of an old Amish chow chow recipe. And so whatever leftover produce there is at the food bank, they turn into this condiment, which then they sell. And ultimately, they hope that that will raise funds for the food bank. But there really is opportunity to take what is now food waste and make something else out of it. There's some other examples. There's a company in the UK that's making um, uh, beer out of old bread, which is fascinating. Then there's someone making bread out of old beer. And so that one is just like, I don't even know what to do about that. (laughs) A perfect cycle. I mean, there's a lot of innovation. There's a company in LA who's taking the pulp um, from juice pressing and turning it into veggie trips and uh, chips and baking mixes. Um, there are, there's a company, I think, also in L.A., uh, turning spent grain into granola bars. This is great. These are good projects. And I, I love this company. I don't know if anyone has seen Sir Kensington, which is a vegan mayonnaise, but they use the liquid. It's called aquafaba. Does anyone know what that is? This, it's, this is the liquid, right? That you, yes? Okay, we have, yeah, aquafaba <laughs> fan in the house. This is the liquid that's if you buy a can of, say, chickpeas, and there's that sort of odd liquid, but it turns out you whip it up. It's like egg whites, right? So you you can get a lot of, you know, like they're making mayonnaise out of that. And so instead of eggs, you're using that liquid and they partner with a hummus company and a marriage is made. And now we've got less food waste and new food products. So there's a lot of opportunity to come up with innovative solutions. And I think we talked about you or maybe going to explore some of these ideas here at Kitchens for Good. Well, and I mean, really, Chuck's love is making sure damaged fruits and vegetables don't end up in landfills. And so, uh, He's been coming up with, how many people have seen citrus lying down on on the ground in San Diego? It's all over the place. Well, let me introduce you to Orange You Glad, we called it marmalade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so there's a number of things. We've been looking at um, uh, using spent grains. We think that every brewery who serves a burger um, should have a bun made from their spent grains, uh, and the possibilities are endless. And I know you just and then make more just, beer you know, out of the bread, like and then five make more ideas. <laughs> <laughs> He's writing them down in the back, right? <laughs> Mayonnaise, wow. Um, you know, no. Look, the, the possibilities are endless, and I think the idea is: look, first, become aware of the problem, how significant it is, what the impact is. And we did have an interesting question from the audience because, obviously, and I said it earlier with the statistic about where the losses are in the developing world. It's at the post-harvest processing and distribution, and on our end, it's more on the consumer in retail. And the question is, and I'm not sure if anyone here feels like they want to jump on this, but these are two distinct problems, and uh, which one is more difficult to solve? Uh, it sounds to me like the distribution chain one is a more difficult one to solve, but what, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm listening to the stories, and I, I, you know, I don't know how to 
I, I, and it's, it's not my line, but I don't know how to get it to the rural areas. I mean, when we go out there, there are times it's monsoon season. That village is totally cut off. If it's not a grain-based um, food that can be stored for long periods, I don't know how you would get food into that area. Uh, there aren't trucks. There's sometimes not, there's not roads, you know. So I don't know if it's necessarily, I, I mean, I hate to describe what's harder because I think any circumstance where people are in deprivation is hard and I, I don't want to have a competition about what is worse for someone. But how, do you, how can we, because we work a lot with ministries of health and I am in so many meetings with so many foods that nobody is eating, you know? And it is, it's this like notion of bountiful, right? That notion of bountiful is, is a privilege and, and that's supposed to make us all feel good. And yet we don't know how to distribute. I don't even, we get stockouts for basic medications. Drones are something I know that are getting used for medications to try to get them into areas. Can that be as a resource? Perhaps, but I, this is sort of out of my realm of expertise. I can only tell you that your standard mechanisms of distribution cannot reach many of these environments. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Anyone? Oh, okay. I, yeah, please. When we talk about distribution here in San Diego, there are so many food deserts, and so we lack access to provide, you know, neighborhoods food that could potentially be sold to the consumer as opposed to being wasted. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a good, that's a good tie-in to our next uh, person down the row, who's Allie from Specialty Produce, because with her business, who does connect with, well, Allie, tell us about what you do at Specialty and tell us about the program that you started there. Sure. So I work as part of the dispatch team at Specialty Produce, and what we are starting is a program called Waste Not San Diego. Um, We work with over 900 restaurants all over San Diego County. We are a wholesale produce distributor. Um, And as many of you know, restaurants generate a lot of food waste. I mean, a single restaurant can generate anywhere from 25,000 to 100,000 pounds of food waste in a year. Ton of waste. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we know that we have a food waste problem, and at Specialty Produce, we also have this unique access to all of these accounts. So I started doing research, and I found that some other produce companies had started some really great food recovery programs. So that's what we did. We joined forces with the San Diego Food Bank to create Waste Not. And what that is, is that we set them up with a kit, which is a box and metal trays. And when they have a surplus of prepared food, they package it up, put a label on it. And then when we go to make a produce uh, delivery, we go ahead and bring it back to our warehouse where it's picked up um, from one of our nonprofit partners. And the key to making something like this successful, I think, is making it easy. We have to make it so easy for these chefs that we want them asking themselves, you know, why aren't I participating in this program? And what enables us to do that is that our in-house development team has created an online ordering system. So all of those accounts can create a profile that has all the stuff that they're ordering on a regular basis. 
and we actually have 96% of our orders all being done online. So we're using our existing system and all we have to do is add our Waste Not San Diego codes to their profile and then when they're making their produce orders online they say hey I need more supplies or I have a pickup and we can even send that to our drivers on their iPads as they're on their way there and say hey can you pick up a box? They bring it back to the warehouse and that's it. Easy peasy. That's fantastic. I mean, that's it's the perfect example. This is a company that's already delivering to the vast majority of restaurants. Why is it? Why can't it be a two-way street? And and good for you for figuring out how to apply that here. Now, if we can get you to apply that distribution solution solution to part of the developing world, we might just get somewhere. Those are some bigger problems. Um, now, tell me what about your other plans? You have some other ways that you work with the food waste that you have at Specialty. So. Um our system is very efficient. We actually only have 2% waste, which is really crazy and really wonderful. The waste that we do have is that produce that's you know, on the verge of turning. It might have some brown spots. It might be you know, past its sell-by date. So what we do is we put that into large blue barrels, and then we work with Nathan Rakoff at Zadik Farm. He comes twice a week from Alpine, and he picks up about 14 of these barrels at a time. He comes twice. So it's 5,000 pounds of produce that would have gone to a landfill. Instead, he's picking up, bringing back to his farm, and feeding his animals. Right. So look, after we talked about reducing waste, we talked a little bit about taking that food waste and getting it to humans and then sort of the next tier in the, in the hierarchy is feeding animals, you know, sort of the bottom level choice is putting it in the landfill. So if we can take any food waste and divert it, if not to humans, if it isn't suitable, then to animals, then that's, you know, really what we ought to be trying to do. Uh, and then the next category um, that we really, well, actually, let's go to Noel for a second, because you do some of this at, at your business model. Tell us about how you divert some food waste to your animals. In our stores, in the markets, we have um what she's referring to specifically is our is our juice bars. Um, those those juicers create a lot of waste, and um, to me, that's all nutrient. Um, I don't care for the juices. I like orange juice, and and I'm a snob about it. <laughs> but a lot of people like their green juices. And I like to eat my vegetables. But that waste that's there is still food, and we take it back to the farm and feed it to our chickens. Um, the chickens go crazy over it. The more greens that chickens eat, the better the eggs. Egg yolks shouldn't be yellow. They should be orange. I grew up in the egg business. I know yellow yolks. It was the best day of my life when we got out of the chicken business and I was in the sixth grade. But now I'm back into it with 500 birds instead of 180,000 of them. And it smells a lot better, too. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, so we take that pulp and, and then also anything that comes off of the, uh, quote, the wet rack where vegetables are and all that. If they're peeling any waste off of that, there is no waste. In our operation, there is no waste. Um, we work with Feeding America with our avocado packing operation. And those bins of avocados were from us. And I know Del Rey avocado were overwhelming them. We had to find, we had to divert. So we have pigs. We can divert there. I found them other pig farmers for Del Rey. And we, we put it back into as food for pigs. So the farmer was able to supplement. And, you know, that's just a, it's just a wonderful fat. So feed it to a pig, it becomes an even better bacon. Yeah, so, um, but we are, you know, pretty much a zero waste operation when it comes to our, our food out of our uh, juice bars and kitchen at the, far, at the stores and then our packing operation at the farm. 
And Chris, you, you feed animals of a different kind with, with your recycling process. Tell us a little bit about it. So at Closing Loop, we're, a, we're an integrated uh, zero-waste sustainability company. It's a big mouthful, but what that means is that uh, we do recycling. Uh, we do that just like everybody else does, but we also do um, kitchen oil for biodiesel, but we also do the food waste, um, just kind of like the barrels that uh, the bins that Ali's talking about. We do those as well, and we feed, um, we pick them up from multiple different uh, restaurants, uh, commercial locations, um, universities, all kinds of uh, all kinds of businesses around the city. I think we're moving close to 10 tons a week uh, of food waste. Um, but what we do is we actually, um, the system's kind of convoluted, but uh, I'll make it really simple for you. We feed it to black soldier fly larvae. Uh, so we're actually feeding this food waste to insects. Uh, the great thing about these insects is that they actually like protein. So they're more interested in the meat products and the dairy products and the little bit of oils that are left over, the stuff that isn't going to go to the chickens necessarily or the stuff that isn't going to get composted um, by Sarah at the community gardens. Um, and so the great thing about these black soldier fly is that they're 40% protein. Now the grain that we feed to uh, chickens and to fish for aquaponics and even the cattle is only 18% protein. The problem with that is the great amount of land mass that it takes to, to grow these. And here in the state of California, at least, at least 25% of our water goes to grow that grain that we then feed to animals to you know, get eggs or actually get the meat from them. Whereas these black soldier fly, we actually feed them no water. The water that's existing in the food is enough for them to grow. Uh, the great thing about them is that once they pupe out into the fly, they only live for seven days. They don't have a stomach and they don't have a mouth, so they're not a pest. Uh, their whole, um, once they pupate out into the fly, their whole job is just to make more and then they die off. So this isn't like a pest vector or anything like that. In fact, they'll actually eat other flies too. So this is, uh, we've looked at this as like a great way to create a new source of feed for our animals. We can, and it's kind of more of an integrated um, approach because I know we're talking about food waste, but we have the potential to save water. Um, and then we also have the potential to, to create organic feed cheaper than chemically grown feed. And we also have the potential to create uh, hubs in these food deserts. Uh, where we could use that feed to grow aquaponics so that we could put protein into these lower income areas. And we also, you know, our model of being integrated with the recycling and stuff, if we can franchise that out, we can move into these neighborhoods and actually create business owners uh, and help out with the socioeconomics part of that as well. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I actually, I was telling a little, my friend earlier a little bit about the work that you do, and uh, she lives in Mexico, and she said, why don't we just eat the flies, you know, because in most parts of the world, right, people eat insects, larvae, and so forth, uh, and, you know, I don't know if we're maybe ready for that in the United States yet, but uh, it's certainly, I think, one of the protein sources that the rest of the world is looking at. Um, I know that you're also involved in composting, uh, have been, and a little bit are uh, now as well, but tell us about the work that you do composting that's separate from the work with respect to the flies. We actually started, this April will be five years that we've been in business. Uh, the flies have, um, the flies, at first it was composting, then it was worms, then it was flies. And what was interesting was, um, you know, we're always looking to try to, to keep moving forward and figure something better out. But what really pushed us in this direction was the regulations. Um, and and um, it's really 
The only word is draconian. It's kind of, and it's absurd. Um, we got it, we fell into a really good situation where um, we were composting on federal property. And so usually the federal government doesn't exonerate themselves from state law, but it was worked in the lease that we could do this. Um, so we were allowed to bring off-site material onto this property and compost it. So because of that loophole, we were able to start off our business composting. But if you try to do that now, like there's no mid-level composter. You either have the large municipality like the Greenery or the one in Oceanside that's opening up at Trula Vista, or you have the other level where it's uh, Sarah here where they're taking it to the community gardens because that's now allowed by law, but they're capped at a certain amount. So there's two extreme ends. There's no mid-level like where we were. So we moved into the worms because that was animal husbandry. Because we were like, well, look, we can't create a business on a loophole because now we're just stuck in this one little area. Um, so we started with worms, and that was great. Um, and that was uh, because it's animal husbandry. So it totally falls out the realm of composting. Uh, but then the problem was that the Miramar opened up, and they started accepting meat. And so that, you know... In the grand scheme of things, that was competition. Like, well, how do we, how do we work with that? Um, and the way they do it is they actually do something called heat composting, where they put it in large windrows. I'm talking 300 feet long, huge windrows. It takes up the same size land mass as a, as a landfill, pretty much, but it's just for food. And they use wood, uh, wood chips. And they heat it up. They superheat it to 180 to 200 degrees. But composting um, is just like pasteurization. It's between 140 to 160. If any of you guys make beer or make kombucha or any, you know, anything that you have to do that stuff with, 140 to 160, that's where you want to stay. You get to 170, you start killing off the thermophilic bacteria, the bacteria that makes compost you know, nutrient-dense. They're going 180 to 200, so they're just sterilizing. And so they're killing it off, but they have to to destroy the pathogens uh, that would necessarily be in the meat that's just sitting there. So this is going to be a big issue now, though, because we, ha- we got a question about a new- isn't there a new law that's going to actually require the segregation of organic matter? And the answer is yes, for businesses, schools, apartment buildings, essentially uh, the mandatory organic recycling um, law, which is phasing in. It's already started. And so what you're talking about, the issues with respect to the current legal and regulatory framework and really a available composting sites is going to create a problem because this stuff has to go somewhere. And so we really are going to have to take a a tougher look, I think, at some of the impediments to centralized composting or a variety of composting. I think Noel has mentioned some of those impediments as well. Now, Sarah, you actually fall into another kind of a loophole outside of most of the problematic regulations. Tell us about the work that you're doing. So at Inika, we are um, an incubator for social enterprise because social enterprise that solves problems related to waste. Because we realize that um, as a society, we've done very well in educating people about waste and recycling and you know, waste is a resource. But if waste is a resource, we've really not done very well at attaching a value to it. Um, and if we were to just make, offer an enabling environment where enterprise could step in and people could actually make livelihoods or supplement their income, solving some of these waste-related problems, uh, this problem wouldn't be that big. It's not going to go away, but we need a variety of solutions that are 
trying to chip away at the problem. So being an incubator for social enterprise, we created our own pilot, which is Food to Soil. What Food to Soil does is uh, it, it is a, a collective of community-based composters. We collect food scraps, pre-consumer food scraps from restaurants, match them up with a community garden in their neighborhood. We hire a local compost technician who knows how to compost, and we train them along the way so they all only need basic knowledge of composting. And the idea really is to keep the resources in the community. So you're picking up food scraps, you're taking it to a community garden, hiring someone from the local community to do this. Uh, it's not a solution like, you know, like Chris said, you know, we, we don't accept meat, we, we can't take grease, we, we can't take plate scraps. Uh, but what we're really trying to demonstrate is that these decentralized participative methods of managing waste are very viable. They're actually valuable for the community because it allows us to source separate some of the stuff that we are putting in. Once you put something in a dumpster, you don't really know what's in it. But when we collect these pre-consumer uh, food scraps, we see lemon peels. And so you know, you'll see that, that vinegar cleaner that we've placed in the back. We just saw a whole bucket of lemon peels. And we we're like, you know, what can you do with this? I mean, of course, you can compost it. But isn't there a higher value to these lemon peels? And so we said, OK, let's try this lemon cleaner. And you know, it, we tried that. Uh, so, so what we're trying to demonstrate really is that there is value in in enterprise-based approaches, there's value in decentralized approaches, and they should be a part of the larger design. So, you know, we're not ruling away commercial composting. We're not ruling away those anaerobic digesters. We need them. But we also need these decentralized, community-based, participation-based models that sort of scale down the problem. Because if you don't have those lemon peels, if you don't have those pre-consumer food, food scraps, um, we collect a lot of oyster shells. And you know, we're wondering, like, there, there are nutrients. There is an application in this. There are, there are some building applications people tell us about. So, so if we could just rule away some of these high-value materials from the waste stream using enterprise, using innovation, the problem would be a lot less. So. Um, that's what we do, and 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 where we, the reason we we go to community gardens to compost is because the soil that we make at the community gardens goes back into the garden plots. So there's a use for it, and you know it's it's a nice, very nice closed loop system. Excellent. We actually have a question that goes back a little bit earlier to the work that you're doing, uh, uh, Allie, and it's uh, a Facebook question. Uh, and that, that is whether restaurants would face, and for you as well, actually, do restaurants face any liability if the food they donate is given to somebody and someone gets sick? Do you know about that, that rule? I bet you do. We hear about that a lot. You know, people are really worried. No one wants to get sued. Here's the good news. There is the Good Samaritan Law. I'm sure you are very familiar with it. You cannot be sued for donating food, which is wonderful. And I don't think there's any cases where anyone has in the past or any foodborne illnesses, any record of it, but they are protected, so they don't have anything to worry about. And it's a tax write-off for them as well for the donated food, and it's great PR and no cost to them. Anything to add to that? Just win, 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 <laughs> win, win. 
Rafa wins. What about, uh, that's sort of restaurants. What about consumers? What about food waste that we might generate at home? We have a big barbecue. What about that? Can that go to the food banks? Can it, does the same sort of rules apply to you? You know, it's, it's tricky once it gets to the household level because there are certain food safety issues. And so before any of that food, I mean, just cook what you need and what you want to eat the next day. Um, because once it's prepared and it's sitting out, as lovely as it may be, um, there are certain food, it, food safety issues that we need to take into account. Do you wanted to add something over here? Oh, I was Please. just going to say eat your leftovers. <laughs> yeah, um, I, anything, anything almost tastes good scrambled with eggs the next day. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of repurposing leftovers in that way. Uh, all the time. So, if you have single serving containers, you can always freeze leftovers in those containers. And boy, is that great when you get home late one night and you don't feel like cooking dinner or you want to get it out and thaw it for lunch the next day. And offer to your friends because I'm sure that you know somebody who's probably hungry and would be more than willing to come get a good home cooked meal. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I always find like, you know, in the work that we do, we work with a lot of really talented chefs and I know you can make great food with amazing ingredients, but show me what you can do with these leftovers and this and that. Then I'm really impressed. And the truth is, like, that is how you make great stuff. And I think singling it out um, and, and freezing, you know, portions is, is key. And it's interesting. There are a lot of different places. We have some hands out, handouts. They're either on your chair. You'll get them on the way out that have a lot of tips for how to you know, save and store food at home. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the resources say, hey, leave the big box stores alone because, you know, it seems like there's a lot more and it's cheaper. But when you buy more, you tend to waste more. So, you know, the idea of, of shopping in a smaller time frame for the week, planning it out probably does make sense. And, and then we won't even have to get into the rest of the discussion about what to do with it when we've wasted it. So uh, getting back to where we were, you know, you mentioned something about business use. So it seemed like the perfect lead in to talk to our friend at the very end, Kevin over there. Sorry, we've forgotten about you. It's all good. But he's got such cool, innovative things happening. Tell us what you do after we've tried everything else. <laughs> So one of our companies uh, develops a green building material called Ecor, and we basically convert fiber waste into advanced building materials to replace wood, plywood, MDF, and cardboard. And we use fiber waste, which is usually cardboard, paper, but we use a lot of agricultural waste. So we can take things like coffee grounds and spent brewer's grains and really create innovative building materials that you can use instead of wood. And so one of the best examples we have is we're working with a global brewer to basically convert their spent brewer's grain, their cardboard, and paper, and really figure out if we can use that for doing six-pack containers, retail graphics and displays, and really take away all the paper and cardboard and foam and plastic that they use in their enterprise and really keep a circle going of, of converting their waste that they're using into their enterprise. And so we think it's one of many models of where we can take agricultural waste, a lot of it's burned, a lot of it's sent to landfills, and really create a pro- you know, solve a problem in a way that creates profits for them and saves waste. So that's kind of one of the things we're doing. Well, I think, look, it's clearly not necessarily the first choice with you know, food-related waste, right? First is not wasting, feeding humans, feeding animals, composting. But the truth of the matter is there's an extraordinary amount of food waste ending up in our landfills. And the one, we can, one thing we can all agree on is that that's the worst place for it to be. And so the idea that you can create building materials, which are going to be generated anyway, and instead of using new raw materials, you're using food waste and other recycled materials, I mean, hats off to you. I 
I think that that's the kind of innovative thinking we need to have to deal with the size of the problem that we have. The amount of food waste or organic waste that we're generating is truly extraordinary. And so we, any way that we can try to tackle that, I think, I think is, is critical. So I like that you said that one of the products that you make um, is actually a replacement for drywall. And you also do sort of press board, is that right? Sort of all building? It's being used for everything from decorative wall panels to ceiling tiles to furniture and fixtures, office tables and desks, decorative wall panels. Um, it can really even replace drywall right now. It's not competitive price-wise, but it will be in a couple of years. I'm trying to decide whether I want to, you know, use that spent grain to make bread or to <laughs> to make feed pigs or to, to to build a house or all of the above and then make beer out of that at the end and start all over again. I don't know. <laughs> uh, anything. Uh, Noel, you look like you were thinking during that part of the conversation. Well, no, I, I'm just in awe. I'm thinking, God, what a great idea, because, you know, for years I've I've worked with wood. I, I love working with wood, and I think of press board, and I think, well, what is particle board? More, it's the same brewery grain that I pick up. You know, it's just wood. And you know, I think back to a uh, a friend of our family's who was in World War II, and uh, as a child, he was a survivor, leaving um, Yugoslavia, where the and and everybody in his group was shot except for him and one other boy, and. Uh, they were walking along a road, and I'm getting goosebumps of the story. And he was picked up by a German soldier who knew, um, who asked him who he was and where he was from. And he said, "Oh, I know that monastery and that school." Um, and he put him under the bench of the seat of the seat of the truck and hit him in a German truck, leaving Yugoslavia. And it's the only reason he survived. But what he gave him to eat was a loaf of bread made of particle board and wow. spent brewery grain. <laughs> and and that's what he survived on for two days laying under a bench. And now we're taking those t- same type of things that we built things out of that particle board. And, and you think, oh, God, that's wood. That's wood. That's trees. We've got to grow those trees. No, we're growing grain. We're making, we're drinking. We're having a great time, having a great party, drinking beer. But we can take the grain and make something out of it that, that makes, you know, the world go around. Make a panel, make a, a board. I just, I don't know. I, I just think it's cool. <laughs> There's so many. Unions. Any other new products or ventures in sort of the same vein that you're working on, Kevin? You know, I, I think it just really comes to innovation of how can you think of everything that we're, we're using or, or building in the world and how can we really integrate, you know, recyclable solutions into it. And so since our material is so diverse, you have people making everything from hangers to, you know, desks out of it. And, and there's so many things that we make. Um, that we're seeing other people be just as innovative. You know, I think one of the most cool things that we saw recently was, you know, on the same level as someone using spent brewer's grains for doing the six-pack rings out in Florida with the brewery. And I think most people probably saw that video on Facebook of, you know, turtles eating the, uh, the six-pack rings. So I think that there's a lot of innovation happening. And, you know, that's just another example of someone using the, the brewer's grains for something that's a, a really big problem. And then, uh, Noel, I, we, we didn't talk about this earlier, but I know that you also collect... Uh, fish parts, and, I, and which is sort of what we had on the menu today. Thank you, Catalina. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> we got sort of when, when people go, the same thing happens with beef. Like when people go in, they, they want the filet. Uh, it's true of fish. It's true of meat. The statistics are staggering. The amount of waste that is generated in terms of seafood and meat is really, you know, inexcusable. And so a fishmonger like Catalina has a lot of sort of fish parts uh, at the end of the day, and you collect those. Tell me about that. So we do. We collect bins and bins of it. At, at one point, you know, it was 
four or five thousand pounds a week of heads and and tails and and all the all the excess, all the stuff we don't eat, and all the fillets that you know all the fillets are going and and we get to enjoy those. But all this is waste. And uh, during certain times of the year, the lobster fishermen and and those guys will, will buy that and, and use it for bait. But at, a, at the rest of the year, that's, that's trash to Catalina. And, and to me, one of the best fertilizers I can purchase is, is fish fertilizer. And as a kid, we always had a barrel where we, when we went fishing, we threw the fish waste in there and dad would throw a little water on it and then he'd cover it up. And it was in an off in a corner of, you know, we have a 300 acre ranch, so you didn't smell it, but it was the best fertilizer for dad's garden. You know, well now my garden's 300 acres. And so I've, uh, I picked up what's called a hammer mill and I grind this fish up into a pulp and put it back into barrels and, and, um, and agitate it with a, with a little agitator and, and we've even tried a compressor and adding air to it and oxygen. And the bottom line is, no matter how I use it, whether I put it in my compost, well, my quote unquote, not compost, um, and I'll get into that. Um, no one's going to say anything. Or if I just anything. put it in uh, liquid onto, uh, onto the farm, it's one of the best fertilizers I can, I can put on my products. And it's organic. Well, you know, the interesting thing is anyone who's a home gardener, if they've gone to the nursery, they sell fish emulsion, you know, sort of the things that we're talking about uh, actually can occur in nature. You can actually just get the fish parts. And I'm going to give you the statistics. So 35% of the fish and seafood uh, that's generated is wasted. And if you put that into sort of poundage in the aggregate, that's the equivalent, uh, equivalent of 3 billion Atlantic salmon, just to put that, that's annually. So I want to talk for a minute. We've talked about bone broth, but there's lots we can do with the other fish parts uh, at home before we even get to the garden, right? What, a, what, a, what can we do with those? You, you, want, oh, you can make a nice fish stock with it. Um, I've seen they're taking salmon skin and making it into leather. There's a number of things that you can do. And most of the nutritional value or the oils, that the high concentration of oils that you get from fish come from the skeletal remains as opposed to the actual meat itself. So by breaking that down, you're making it easier for your body to uh, digest and benefit from. And anybody who has a thyroid issue, which seems like a lot of people today, the fish heads are so full of iodine and they're really wonderful for that. So instead of you know, going to the doctor and getting medications, if you've got time to try nutrition, fish head broth would be a great way to do it. It's an interesting point, too, because there has been a move away from iodized salt to, to sea salt, which has, as you've said, I know before... Uh, a lot of minerals and is a positive thing, but there actually are iodine deficiencies with, uh, with a lot of populations, even here in San Diego, and so this is another way to get that, not to mention the additional health benefits and the flavor that you get, so it doesn't have to be a waste product, right? So it has some additional benefits. Yeah, um, and you know what it strikes me as we're sitting here is that a, a famous immunologist recently told me that in order for us to stay healthy based off of the way our vaccinations are going and things like that is to go back to the way our grandparents and great-grandparents did it. And we're really talking about going back to the way our grandparents and great-grandparents did it. We just have fancier technology. But maybe if we were to think more about those kinds of things of how they used to do it, it not only connects us to our ancestors, which is incredible for healing in general, but it allows us to rethink the way we're doing things in our sped up lives. It's a very, very good point. Anyone want to add in on that one? No? Okay. Um, any other sort of thoughts about, you know, you mentioned earlier bone broth, and I, I, I want to give another statistic about meat, and 
and I find this one also problematic. So meat is, we dispose 20% of meat, um, and if we aggregated that, that amount is equal to about 75 million cows. So also a big item. And what gets thrown away, just like with the fish, is, you know, you want the filet, you want this cut, the bone, skin, and so forth. But you talked a little bit about bone broth, but this is not only healthful, as you said, and there's a, there's a benefit in creating this for yourself, but from a, from a sort of consumer perspective and cost, you know, you really can get bones uh, at your butcher shop for nothing or next to nothing because they're going to waste. They can't keep up with the, those parts. And so it's also economical, right? It is. So, and, you know, these days, because bone broth has gotten so popular, it is if you want to have great skin, hair, and nails, and you just want to go the beauty route, it's fabulous for that. I always say bone broth, not Botox. And, but it's great for, you know, any kind of organ issue. Gallbladder issues is one of the biggest things people have today. It's great for the gallbladder, great for the liver, all of your organs, your heart, and your eyes. It's fabulous for that. The only food that has that is animal protein. And the only way we can get that is to break it down. And bone broth is a great way we can do that in the home. It actually lines your small intestine, and it makes your small intestine more effective at extracting nutrients from your other food, and it saves your small intestine from other assaults, like if you were going to eat sugar or something like that. What I love about bone broth, and I've seen this in my own kitchen, is that when I started making bone broth and I was using things like oxtails and things that you would never think to buy because food marketing tells us to buy only 15% of the animal, which is the choice cuts. And because they want us to buy 15%, we have to have more cows to produce the 15%. And if we were to go back to eating nose to tail, and using oxtail and things like that, we now cut down on the need for factory farms. We can start to reverse this process as consumers. So oxtail starts to get more expensive all of a sudden, and knuckles start to get more expensive. But what I find is that I'm actually shopping my freezer when I think about what I need for animal protein for the week. I'm going in, I'm making bone broth, and I'm taking the meat off of the bones and the fat, which is incredibly helpful, and it's that fat that lets us get more minerals into our body and drives the fat-soluble vitamins in. So all that meat off a knuckle that I would have thought was kind of gross before now becomes part of my meal. I can make pâtés with it. I can take marrow that came out of um, in the bone broth, and I can, I can whiz it up in my food processor with the oxtail and make a beautiful oxtail pâté. And it's these things that inspired Louise Hay and I to write The Bone Broth Secret because having grown up in 19, she was born in 1926, her kitchen is sort of like this. I would walk in and I would see her doing these things very naturally. If she would cook asparagus, she wouldn't throw the water away. She would never throw the ends of the asparagus away. She was always reusing things. And that really inspired us to put recipes in the book that would allow people to use more of the waste that happens in our kitchen. It's so funny you say that because, you know, bone broth, it sounds very serious and important. You see it on marketing now. I don't know, everybody. I have to know what it is, right? I, I've got to get some. And my mom said, I've heard my doctor told me about bone broth. I, I need to do something about it. And she said, what is it? And I said, I said, well, it's, you know, cooking bones and water. And she was like, oh, well, that's how we make broth because that is how, you know, it really isn't something new. This is something very old. Only, you know, we stopped, you know, cooking bones to make broth. You know, we sort of got a little, we bought it in cartons that isn't necessarily made that way. So, you know, by reducing food waste, making a healthier product, we're really just sort of going back to an older way. And it turns out to be, you know, better for us, better for our community, more economical. And as you said, you know, Noel, you're also a rancher. 
you know, it, you can't sell just a, a, a fillet of an animal. I mean, it's sort of an all-or-nothing proposition unless you're buying, you know, big box. You know, right? Yeah, you, you don't get the tastiest hog by one piece at a time. You, you get, <laughs> you buy the whole thing, and there's, you know, you're not you're not putting that thing back up on its legs and, and back out in the field. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so, you, you know, you, there's so many things that, like you said, our our our, uh, our grandmothers and parents did. I mean, we always raised animals on the farm uh, for our. There were seven kids, so we always had, but we had. We always had an, an animal in the freezer at all times that, that was feeding all seven kids. And that was commonplace. And soup bones. I mean, we're calling them, you know, it's bone broth, it's bone broth. No, these were, they were soup bones. That's where you started stock. You know, it wasn't that we were, you said it. You said your mom said the same thing. That's, oh, that's how you started stock. We got so far away from that. You know? <laughs> right. It sounds like something new, but it really isn't at all. And it's economical. There's a reason that's what they did. And it turns out that it's better for you. So, you know, it's an interesting conversation whenever we talk about some of these things. On the one hand, it sounds like we're going back to the old. And that sounds counterintuitive in some respects. Uh, but on the other hand, what I really think is there was a lot that we lost in the advancement. And so what I like is the idea that we might, you know, learn from what we, you know, the way that we've gone astray and go back for the right things, but move forward with technological and other advancements, you know, such as you're doing. I mean, really think about how we can embrace the good from the past and move forward at the same time to solve some of the, the tougher problems that we have in the world. So I'm, I'm counting on your next few products. I wanted to ask you too, Sarah, um, there's something else that you've been working on on this issue um, of farm, farm waste, farm-to-table waste um, with respect to a research project. Do you want to tell us about right. it? Right. So um, we are doing uh, a feasibility study to source waste or seconds from farms um, for light value-added processing. Um, this is a project that IRC has been working on, and they would like to expand it, but they really, they, there isn't, um, uh, one, one, we lack processing facilities um, that, that will convert those squishy tomatoes into tomato sauce, right? And, and you know, do that uh, working with the small family farm. So, so, so we have to understand, San Diego County has about 5,800 farms. 68% of those farms are between one and nine acres. Uh, just last year, in 2014, we produced about, I think, 364,000 tons of fruits and vegetables and, and nuts on about 38,000 acres of farmland. If you look at, if you ask a farmer how much of that is unsold, outgraded, um, uh, you know, blemished, uh, past its prime, they'll say it's about 20 to 40 percent, depending on what product it is. So we are at a point where, you know, we have about 60, 64,000 tons of waste. I mean, we don't have accurate numbers. That's the biggest thing. There is no data on how much food is being wasted. So that's you know, one, one big problem. It's all estimates and you know, guesstimates that we're making here. Um, so, so you have all that, all that waste. You have seconds. And by seconds, I mean 
they are they're just unsold. They came back from a farmer's market, or you know, it's a butternut squash that doesn't have that right neck, or you know, the, the tomato, the cat face tomato, or something like that. So, what could we do if you if you wanted that? There, there are no ugly food markets, right? You can't just go as as someone as a consumer who understands this issue of food waste. You can't choose to go to an ugly food market to buy that because you you support the concept. There there isn't one. So. What could we do? What are those enterprise options? How can we step in to make sure that those seconds really get a second chance, either as, either as a seconds market? Maybe they can be put in a CSA box for those communities in San Diego that are hungry, that you know, have that, have, are food insecure. Uh, could we process them into, maybe, maybe can them, preserve them, pickle them? Uh, just chop them up and freeze them so that we can use it next year. But then are we taking an inventory of you know, what we've done with that excess produce last year so that this year we're not overproducing that same, same product? So it's, that, it's, it's a feasibility study, basically, of understanding farm food waste um, and then coming up with options on how we could step in to rescue that, that waste. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned sort of the lack of retail outlets um, here in our community for ugly fruit. And I have to say that internationally and nationally, there are some markets. There's Intermarché in France, and then there are stores in Maine, in Pittsburgh, also Canada. And interestingly enough, Whole Foods in Northern California is engaged in a pilot program right now to put out ugly fruit and vegetable. And I think this is an interesting moment. And and we're really probably going to have to end here because it's the end of our time. But while consumers in this country, at least, might be the biggest source of food waste, if we can change our eating habits, our buying habits, we might also help solve it. And here's how. Because if you go to your local Whole Foods and say, hey, why don't you do what they're doing in Northern California or your Jimbo's or any other store and say, why aren't you putting out the ugly fruit and vegetables? Then Noel won't have to select them and not send them on to the wholesaler, to the retailer. And and they'll get to you as a consumer because it turns out that these ones... um, you know, aren't just eliminating food waste, but they actually taste better than the ones that are round and shiny. So use that power, you know, uh, as a consumer to get your retailers to to bring this food to to you. And I think that's something we can do here. Look, uh, I'm I'm so thankful for everyone tonight. Uh, The lessons to take home really are, you know, try to waste less and what you do waste uh, please make sure that it gets somewhere other than the landfill, which is the last choice option. Before we end, there is a little bit of time if anyone has any questions on the microphone. And for those of you who are not on the Twitter, as my mom would say, uh, feel free to walk up to the microphone and we'll take a few questions for anyone on the panel. So I think I see my friend Francois over here. What's your question? I'd like to share a a, a zero waste uh, thing that we do in in our place, which is called Gira Gourmet, where we collect all the scraps in um, those 10-gallon buckets. And uh, right now, once a week, I take these buckets to our smaller farm and give that to the chickens, which they start decomposting by eating all of it. Mm -hmm. And then we make a pile out of that. So the chickens give us the eggs, we then wash the buckets up at the farm and harvest the new produce in those buckets. Again, zero waste on cardboard. So then we come back, 
with our produce, cook it, clean it, take the scraps back, back to our farm as a circle, a complete circle without waste. Thank you. It's exactly the same model. Thank you. Uh, for, one, for one individual like myself, one thing that I do is when I walk around in my neighborhood, whether I'm running or walking, I try to pay attention to someone's backyard or front yard for that matter. And if I see fruit trees growing and people are not picking their fruits, I usually knock on their door and ask. <laughs> And oftentimes they say, oh, I'm just sick of this. <laughs> Especially now it's the fig season. And they say, I don't want, I don't know why this tree is here. I didn't grow this. And, and then I said, oh, then you have a lot of figs on the ground and the rats come and you don't like it. I can take it off you. I'll come and pick it and I will make something. I'll bring it back to you. And I have made friends in neighborhoods. <laughs> so try that. That's great. Fantastic. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi. I helped found uh, UCSD's Food Recovery Network, and we save all of the dining hall's leftovers to donate it to homeless shelters. And my question was, our biggest need right now is recruiting volunteers. We only have eight people on our team right now. <laughs> And I was wondering what has been the most successful message or method of getting volunteers out, if, especially if it's not a very glamorous or fun volunteer job. I think squishy food is really, like, glamorous. That's fantastic. Um, the great thing, you know, we used to, when I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of don't have age limits for volunteer projects. You know, anyone can come in and separate a firm plum from a squishy plum, and it's such a great way to engage people in service. Um, We can talk. I would be happy to talk about volunteer recruitment. Um, There are so many people who are interested in getting involved, and, yeah, it's... I mean, I remember we decided we were going to start composting everything, and I started doing research, and this was at Feeding America San Diego, and I said, you know, how do we make this happen? Everything was just going into the dumpster, including cans, and um, people would say, oh, you need this big thing, and you put all this stuff in it and smashes it, and then you spit out this and spit out that. I'm like, really? You need all that equipment? That's really expensive. And we ended up managing to go to total compost, get every single one of our cans opened, all the bags opened, uh, bread shaken out into the composter with like a pack of Boy Scouts and about 12 can openers. And people would call and they're like, how are you doing this? You know, your, your numbers are so low for, you know, food waste. And um, I'd say, yeah, can openers and, you know, we, 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 need, need, to, we need to start a merit badge for that. That would be a good way to get that going. <laughs> food waste merit badge. You heard it right here tonight. With this uh, new attention on the issue of food waste in this country, the second biggest category you had up there was um, were, were grocery stores. And I'm wondering is, if anyone's looking at the policy issues around expiration dates for things like dairy or um, prepared refrigerated foods. 
Uh, that's an that's an excellent question because you know there's sell by, best by. There's three or four variations, and quite frankly, all of them are are pretty much meaningless. Uh, and I'd say from a consumer perspective. Um, you know, you can sort of like we can all tell if a food is bad or not bad. You know, smell it. You know, it's just like that's what we do at home, right? Uh, you know, so the, just because it's past that date doesn't mean it needs to go out. But that that you know, the thing is, from the retailer's perspective, they you know have a, a different role. I, and maybe you can answer that because you said earlier that some of the sell-by ones are the ones that end up in the pig bin. Right, I I was kind of blown away when the farmer he was like, "Come come see what's in the bins." I was like, "Oh, I'm sure it's all like stuff that looks gross or whatever." He opened it up, and there's a huge pile of bean sprouts, and they're perfect bean sprouts, but it was past the sell-by date. So you know, great news for his pigs and for his animals, but it's kind of shocking to see that kind of food go to waste. No, I mean, I think look, I, I think at the end of the day. The, 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 the loss that we largely attribute to retailers really kind of comes back on us as consumers because the ugly fruit that they discard or reject from the farmer is because we won't buy it. The sell-by date food that's discarded is because we won't buy it. So, you know, really we do have the power to get the retailers to expand, you know, what their offerings are to us. So I think that's really the way. Does anyone else want to add to that? Well, I think one of our things is we're, we're a lazy society. We don't wash, we don't wash, we don't wash. You know, go to, go to, go to Africa and go into the, a, a school there and go to the, where, where lunch is being served. And the first thing all the kids do is stand up and wash their hands. They don't go eat first and you don't have to be told. They go wash. You know, they wash their hands, they wash their food. And, and if you've got something... I mean, we're just we we're a nanny state and everything's protected by it. You know we're not we don't smell our food we don't wash our food. It's just we got to change and get back to what we knew in generations past. Well, on that note, we will say good night and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.